Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I am sitting here as usual with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Hi, Mark. And we will be discussing the week's new audio with Pete Townsend from 1993. And we will be talking about everything that's new on Rocks Back Pages this week. First, I am thrilled to introduce our special guest, Barbara Sharon. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, Barbara. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. Great honour to have you here. For anyone who doesn't know, I can't imagine there are many of you out there, but Barbara is a living legend in the music business, arguably the most powerful PR in pop over the last I won't argue three with decades. That. <laughs> <laughs> or the legend, right? Yeah, methinks she doth not protest too much. <laughs> but I think that that is fairly unarguable. But we're, we're going to talk about your whole career, going back to when you were you know, one of us, you were a music writer. You started out writing in Chicago, your native Chicago. We're going to be talking about NME. We're going to be talking about sounds. We're going to be talking about all the incredible artists that, that you interviewed in that time. Tell us how, I mean, how did you start off writing? I believe you wrote, uh, if you're a student newspaper, is that correct? Yeah, I did. I always loved music and I did write for my, I had a column in my high school paper and I used to go to, I spent all my money on records and concert tickets and quite often was late for school because I was getting tickets in the first five rows. And one day <laughs> I just accosted verbally, not physically, the music critic for the Chicago Sun-Times and said, you know, I want to do what you do when I grow up. And he said, well, if you ever have any good ideas, send a piece in. And the very first piece I sent in, probably like a week later, because that's one thing you have to be is ambitious and straight away, have momentum, don't, like, not do it. He printed the piece. Fantastic. So, like, straight away I had a story in the Chicago Sun-Times. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? Yeah. Which was so exciting. And then... Can you remember what that was about? It might have been about... My first piece in Rolling Stone was about James Taylor. But, no, I can't. I can't. Yeah. But, yeah, and then about a year later, I went to do my junior year of university in London on an exchange program smart kids where you could do as much or as little work as you wanted. And I started, I wrote a lot of stuff for Chicago Sun-Times, sending articles mm-hmm. back, and then also started to write for NME. I may bit. be able to find the Sun-Times stuff, see if the archive's available. I had that'd the be, same thought. That'd be great to get. Yeah, 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 amazing. And what was London like for well, someone was, coming um, from Chicago? What year was that when you came to London? 72, 73, right. I think. I graduated in 74, which is amazing because I'm only 40. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I became friendly with Moira Bellis, who I now run NBC with, our company, which is 20 years old next year. And Moira was running the press office at Warner Brothers, or worked at Warner Brothers. And I used to get to go to Old Grey Whistle Test, and I remember once America, for some reason I was obsessed with seeing them, probably because it was the Neil Young thing. Horse uh, no yeah, it was the very dudes. beginning. That some of those bands would come in and they'd only do... Old Grey Whistle Test. So the only way I've seen them was... But yeah, London was ridiculous for me. You know, I grew up pretty much buying exclusively British bands. And, you know, just seeing Waterloo Bridge, I was a huge Kinks fan. Yeah. Obviously, Kinks Who, Stones, Beatles, all the greats. Yeah, it was just incredible, you know, going to Liverpool for the first time. Even going... I went to Muscle Hill. You know, I was excited about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of place names, right? A lot of places There's to visit. There's the pub. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Well, we're, so, um, we're a bit the same like that in America. You oh, know. totally. You, you seek out these places. You know, that are... take us to Chicago, and we're yeah. just doing the English version, which yeah. is like... We, we were in Chicago together about Four two, years two ago. three years ago. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. And we went to the chess studios. We had a, we had a private um, kind of tour of the chess well, studios. Well, as soon as I got my driving license in America, you get it at 16, I borrowed my parents' car and with some girlfriends drove, of course, to a blues club. You know, we were the only white people yeah, yeah. with this, like, big car that my dad had. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't even think that's really not a good look. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you were in London, and the earliest of the three pieces that we're going to feature on the homepage this, this week is, is a piece about The Who for NME in 1973. They're recording Quadrophenia. You are right there. You're embedded in this setup. You're in the studio. You're watching... Keith Moon outside their new Battersea studio recording a thunderstorm and Townsend saying, too much umbrella, not enough storm or something. It's just, it's, oh, it's just great. That's your Ramport studio in Battersea. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Which I, was I, new then. I mean, um, I had previously pretty much been doing mostly live reviews for NME. Yeah. I remember once I was the only one that would go do Lemmy, <laughs> not just Motorhead. There was some mad band I think they had. Hawkwind? Yeah, it was Hawkland. Yeah. And, you know, like, everyone's like, ooh, no. He's like, I'll do that. I'll do it, yeah. That's how you get That's ahead. That's what you have exactly. to do. But hence James Taylor. No, I'm just kidding. But presumably, <laughs> presumably no one was saying, oh, I don't want to do The Who. I mean, no, how did you get a, The Who? How did you get The, the Who? The Who song? was just one of those, I uh, was obsessed with The Who. Yeah. And that was probably just before I went back to the States to finish university. And it was just pure, probably, bravado of getting in to the studio. Yeah. I mean, it was really an exclusive. I mean, no one had yeah. heard anything. You'd never get a piece like that these days, would you? No. Not because there are people like Barbara Sharon preventing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I mean, and you know, you know yourself yeah. how it was. Yeah. You would go interview people and they'd be drinking special brew at 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah. And they trusted you. There was an inherent trust. Absolutely. That you would write a really great piece or a fair piece. Yeah. It wasn't that it had to be, mm-hmm. but that you would not put excessive amounts of drugs or drink or anything that was, you know, shouldn't really be in the papers. But, yeah, the access that you had was yeah. just unbelievable. But everyone was kind of, I hate to use this word, on a journey. Yeah. But everyone... Re- you know, it's so like the movie Almost Famous. Yeah. I mean, it really... Yeah, your life must have been like that. Yeah, and I knew Cameron around the time, because I worked for Rolling Stone yeah. for a couple of years. Because when I went back to America, finished university, and then was really lucky, got a full-time job in England. Penny Valentine had just left Sounds, and they wanted a woman to replace her. Uh-huh. And so I also, because I would have to have a work permit and all that, so I was super lucky. It was an incredible time. I think my very first assignment for Sounds was to do a huge special on the Rolling Stones, and I was so disappointed. It was just, it was Mick Taylor and Keith Richards, Mm -hmm. and I was, like, crushed that it wasn't Mick Jagger, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life that it wasn't Mick Jagger, because... I wrote when Keith walked in the room, rock and roll walked in after him. And it really was like that for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was just unbelievable. Yeah. And that led to me just doing, getting my foot in the door with the stones and not letting that door shut ever. You were one of the writers (laughs) who, who like made the stones so cool in that. Well, the thing about the stones was, I mean, going back to the who is that eventually after three years at sounds or 
three and a half years, it sounds. I wanted to write a book. Because, I mean, we were churning out, I don't even know how many thousands of words every week. Yeah. A feature or a cover story, yeah. four album reviews, three live yeah. reviews. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. And I wanted to write a book, you know, something more permanent. And I wanted to write a book on The Who, and I was quite friendly with Roger Daltrey. And him and Pete then were very, you know, on two opposite yeah, sides yeah. of the Who spectrum. Yeah. And I'd done, Roger had done a movie, and Roger had done that solo album. Yeah. So I'd interviewed him a lot. And he obviously was very, wanted me to do the book, but Pete didn't. And then I had the idea of doing Keith. And the other people at the time that were interviewing Keith a lot was Nick Kent and Pete Erskine, who's yeah. sadly no longer... Here And I think I was the only one that, even in Keith's foggy state, realized that, you know, they were all dabbling in serious, they being the journalists, drugs. And that he would probably realize that if there was going to be a book... You were more likely to write it. Yeah. And Nick would have written his biography on a packet of cornflakes. And nodding out over a packet of cornflakes. I'm holding the copy of your book that I I bought when it came out. I'm so pleased I still have it. You have to sign it for me before we go. But this is it. It was. was, I mean, I I was obsessed with Keith anyway before this book. But this book really, it, it was the one that made me hyper obsessed by Keith Richards it's all in there and this so the, the another of the pieces that we're featuring is one of many pieces you wrote about the Stones about Keith and it's it's you you go to Toronto to talk to him and Anita about the infamous drug bust and you're right there in fantastic the, the 30 on the 30 yeah. second floor and the details are, I that think was that was what the we, beginning of, yeah. of doing the book it was funny because at the time I must have taken, like, uh, maybe 100 quid of Sounds Float yeah. for expenses. And I <laughs> never came back. Long. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I eventually just... I remember I had to go do Genesis in New Orleans, which I did do. But it was so weird leaving that bubble of being with the Stones in Toronto. I mean, that made the book. I was, uh, You know, a lot, everything we all do, a lot of it's luck. Mm-hmm. And I've been incredibly lucky. You know, I mean, in my journalistic career and then in my PR career, one of the first clients I had was Madonna. Yeah. You know, it's like just to have two people like that in your life is... And and you are still her. Yes. Yes. And that's extraordinary in itself. It is. Yeah, that is, I'd say, must be a record. Even though Madonna's probably not that, this podcast, I'm just going to say one amazing thing of fact about Madonna that I think just kind of shows you how no one will ever do what she did. And that's that when she first played in London, it was at the Camden Palace, mm-hmm. Coco, for 20 minutes with mm-hmm. two backing dancers. Mm-hmm. And the next time she played in London was at Wembley Stadium, yeah, right. one of two shows that yep. she sold out. She never played Shepherd's Bush Empire, Brixton yep. Academy, Albert yep. Hall, yep. Town and Country, any of it. And, you know, that will never, ever, ever happen again. No. Ever. No. Yeah. I was on the roof of the Broadwick Street building with you and Madonna, <laughs> When I think that the roof first was great, yeah, yeah, and Peter Anderson, I think, did the photos. It was maybe the first interview she she did with NME, and she's up there. I'm standing next to you, and Peter's stopping, and she's she's got a cross swinging around around her neck, <laughs> and you know you couldn't but think this girl's going places. I used to have to say to people, look, do an interview, and if the single doesn't chart, you yeah. don't have to run it. <laughs> <laughs> like you do, you have to convince them. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. There's another piece, another great 
female star Linda Ronstadt. So the third piece that, that we put is a yeah, sound you know, the piece. funny thing is, obviously, and especially like now with my PR company, I have a lot of bands and we still work with Keith and people like Elvis Costello and yeah. Robert Plant. Mm. So, but in that part of my career at Sounds, I was also obsessed with, like you are, the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, yeah. Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. Oh, my God, you know. You did some of the definitive interviews. Of all that stuff. But Linda Ronstadt was just, you know, hand-grown home sound. Yeah. Amazing. She's so smart as well. I mean. Yeah, she just had so much to her. I remember seeing, there was a club in Chicago called The Quiet Night, where pretty much before I moved to England, I saw Jackson Brown, um, Warren Zevon. I saw the Eagles when they were Linda Ronstadt's backup band before they were even the Eagles. I mean, and, and this club was probably not too much bigger than where we are right now. Absolutely. It's tiny. She talks in this interview about what she calls the, uh, after the line from the War on Zevon song, she calls those guys, Jackson, J.D. Souther and Glenn oh, Fry, the Pioneer Chicken Stand Club or yeah. something. She refers to them as... And of course, she had like relationships with most of them. She's very, she's very candid. She's so underappreciated, yeah. especially yeah. in this country. What happened at Sounds, which was also super interesting, was I was like kind of you know waving the flag for all these Cal- the California rock, and then also plus the Stones and the Who, and then came punk. And punk happened just when I was probably doing right around the time I was started to do the Keith book. So it was probably a good time for me to leave Sounds anyways. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably right. An obvious question to ask is, you know, just the, the whole boys club thing, you know, the, the 70s, the music felt, scene. You know, I once went back went to Madison Square Garden. I think the Who were playing. You say my name's on the guest list. And the guy on the door went, yeah, sure it is, honey. You know, and that's probably yeah. as bad as yeah, it got. Sure. I never had any prejudice from bands or managers or other journalists. Mm. That's great. That's good to hear. I mean, I guess there was, when I think about it now, there probably weren't. There was Vivian Goldman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's Penny Smith, the photographer. Mm. Kate Simon. Yeah. Photographer. But there weren't a lot of them. No. More towards, uh, maybe you talk about punk, I guess after punk, there were more female writers and infamous ones like Julie Birchall. So yeah. everything did change a bit then, yeah. didn't it? Well, when it, when it started to change, also being lucky, after I did the book, I didn't want to go back to working on a music paper. And I did freelance for about a year and a half. Some for the Daily Mail, which was a great experience for what I was going to do as a PR because it's kind of everything. You know, mm. some articles I write would be exactly what I wrote and some would be completely... And then, you know, you someone from the Stones would ring up and say, oh, somebody just came to the studio saying, you said it was okay for them to come in. You know, it's like, no, I never said that. Yes. But I wrote for Cream and Crawdaddy and all yes. that. Mm-hmm. And then I started to work at Warner Brothers, which was great because I needed a job. I had a big overdraft from doing the Keith book. How did you come to work? Was that was that just a fairly sort of, again, well, seamless kind yeah, of transition? For yeah. You? Yeah. I mean, didn't look for a job or anything. I needed a job. And again, Moira Bellis was at Warner's, now running the press office. And I was hired to do, they had a staff writer. So I wrote biographies and press releases with the typewriter in the beginning and Tipex. Yeah. Which, yeah. Tipex. The Tipex. Obviously, made, they've gone out of business. Tipex was this I know, stuff I, I, absolutely. that no, a lot of people might not know that 
when you made a mistake, you'd, it's like kind of a little brush you'd wipe. It was you my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and was invented by Mike Nesmith's mother. Correct. That's, yeah, that's how his, her, her fortune. That's why Michael Nesmith was very wealthy. That's right. Probably less wealthy <laughs> now, I think. But, um, so, that's... yeah, I was lucky. I wrote press releases and I needed some money, paid off my overdraft. And then after about two years of writing press releases, someone, you know, as people do, they leave. And so Moyers asked if I wanted to do press. And for the first, I remember one of the first things I had to work on was Jeff Dean from Modern Romance had a, <laughs> what a solo <laughs> single. And we'd have meetings every week. And so Jeff Dean would come up and mm-hmm. they would say, what do you have on Jeff Dean? And and I'd go, you know, basically nothing. And they'd go like, have you called the NME? And I was like, no, I'm not going to call the NME about Jeff Dean. Which actually is a good lesson to learn that I shouldn't have called because, you know, you, you have to know who to call and who not to call. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and then we, Atlantic Records was part of Warner's. And for a couple of years, I had the first band down at Donington and had to go on the bus with everybody that was, you know, I had coffee and donuts and they were taking sulfate. You know, it was great. <laughs> <Want coffee? laughs> No, I'm okay with this. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and then also Madonna, you know, pretty early on. They were amazing days because Smash Hits was around the corner yes. from where I worked at Broadwick Street. And it was the real golden era mm. of Smash Hits. Mm-hmm. And Neil Tennant, who was a writer at Smash yeah. Hits, who's one of my best friends, they didn't have a TV, so they would come to our office to watch Top of the Pops. <laughs> and they also didn't have access in those days to the charts. So... They would call up and we'd get the chart. And so if I was working on, like, say, Howard Jones or something, and the single had gone down, I'd go, oh, single's gone up, you know, because they didn't know. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) So you were um, feeding them lies from your position of... (laughs) That's just great. Fantastic. We should just mention, before we started recording, you mentioned that the Keith Richards book, essentially you were living at Redlands, his yeah, house. without in Keith. Without Keith, yeah, without Keith. Was he just com- gave you the house to, to work in. I mean, he was incredibly generous when I did the book. The only thing I had to sign was showing him the book and mm. the lawyer saw the book. And he'd actually made almost, I think he made two changes. One was when they were auditioning <clears throat> for um, a new guitar player. There was someone that he thought was a little negative what was said so we just took that out and the other was I think that was all it was or maybe a date but yeah he paid for quite a bit and he let me stay at Redlands which was you know to say it was inspiring was an understatement yeah, which led right. you led you straight to Chelsea Football Club yeah. and your lifelong love we, of love we affair we do have to talk about Chelsea Football Club <laughs> I know Mark is afraid that we will alienate at least half people listening. So just please bear with us. Somebody wrote about a month ago that Chelsea are in danger of being liked (laughs) because of Frank Lampard. We were having this debate earlier with our producer, Jasper, and and, and I think you're kind of right because I don't think people hate Frank. I mean, look, the reason we're we're all three Chelsea fans, sorry, uh, proud Chelsea fans. As is our producer, Jasper. As is our producer. This this room right now, it's 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 like the shed. It's like the shed on a Saturday afternoon. I mean, I have to ask you, you come from Chicago. How did you become a Chelsea fan? Well, the first three years I was in the UK, or four years, I didn't even know about football. I mean, Mm -hmm. it didn't even exist. 
to it me. It was still soccer to you. Uh, uh, also, it wasn't even, also, <laughs> wasn't even soccer. It wasn't even soccer. Right, I didn't yeah. even... That was also a time when there was a massive divide between people who watch football and people who listen to rock and roll. They were kind of very different tribes. Yeah. I mean, there, there was crossover. Well, there as... also wasn't Sky then. And, but, but the bottom yeah. line was I didn't even know about it. And, yeah, I was staying at Redlands, and I'd work all day transcribing cassettes with all the interviews I'd done. On a manual typewriter. And then at night I'd make dinner, have a glass of wine, probably smoke a joint, and watch TV. And I started to watch midweek sports special because it was the only thing that was on. It was like that or gardening in Wales and cooking in Birmingham. <laughs> you could have gone a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah. I know. I could have become Welsh. A gardener. Well. <laughs> yeah. So when I went back to London, the nearest ground was Chelsea because I used mm-hmm. to live in Chelsea. Yeah. And I went to football, and pretty much from when I first went, I just loved it. Mm-hmm. And I've had a season ticket since the early 80s. Yeah. I mean, of course, back in those days, you didn't have to buy tickets in advance because no. the ground was half empty. Yeah. yeah, well, also season tickets were... Like, when I, around the time when I joined Warners and I had a big overdraft to pay off and all that, I still had a season ticket. Yeah. You know I mean? It was probably like 50 quid or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah... So, obviously, I've seen an awful lot of changes at Chelsea. Yeah, yeah. A lot of games and a lot of changes. I mean, the greatest day of my life was when we won the Champions League. I went to Munich. And probably the second was when we won the Premier League title the first time at Bolton. Uh Uh-huh. And I won 200 quid because I bet on... I used to always bet on Lamps to score the first goal. Did you? (laughs) Yeah, so, like, I'd won money. We'd won the league. I mean... It was just like a dream. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. It, we, we should just mention this is the day after our old manager, Jose Mourinho, was named, named the new manager of Tottenham Hotspur, yeah. our, our very, very old rivals. So, so it's a strange 22nd. time, isn't it? Yeah. What do the Chelsea fans sing all the time? <laughs> yeah. We hate Tottenham. Sorry, Spurs. Fans. Yeah, yeah, regardless of who's playing. I but, think it's the last chance saloon for him. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it's already up after the last chance to with him. I think it's going to be a disastrous. It'll end in tears. We're fairly sure. I think that, you know, the thing about Tottenham, and I'm not going to be cruel, or, and Pochettino really is just that he was great for them, but in five and a half years, and this Mm. is just a fact, they never won anything, Mm -hmm. not even the League Cup. Mm -hmm. So for all our joking about Arsenal only winning the FA Cup, which again isn't really anything compared to us. You know, yeah. they've got to win something. Of course they yeah. do. Of course they do. They've got and, that new stadium. But, I mean, um, they're playing us and they're playing Man United in December. Which wow. Is first, which yeah. should be. I just briefly, I think we can all just say. I wish him luck. He was the best manager yeah. we ever had for the first two seasons. Yeah, and I'm in, certainly in terms of, of what we won. But I think we're probably all three of us <coughs> as, as happy as we've been in a long while as Chelsea fans. The, yes. the, the, the football they're playing uh, is exciting. Playing, really the, exciting. playing the kids. Playing the kids. We've been, we've been shouting for for so long. Yeah, yeah you know. I think, though, that I'm sure a lot of the kids weren't given a chance. They should have, but they also, I'm not sure if they were ready. And I think one thing that, like I was saying before about luck, Frank's having a lot of luck. And, and you have to have skill to have luck, yeah, sure. and lots of things yeah. mm-hmm. go into that. But all those kids played together and grew up together, and all they've ever wanted to do is play for Chelsea. Yeah. And they haven't left. They've gone out on mm-hmm. loan. And, mm-hmm. you know, Tammy Abraham, I, even though he scored 26 goals at Villa, I was last year, I was so dubious. And I was dubious of Frank. I wished he'd had two or three more years. I under think, his that's, belt. That's, that's, I think that's, we all felt that. That's, that's, that's but, right. Yeah, so, so far, far, so very good. <laughs> no, yeah. I think it's going to, I mean, when you think that, you know, Rüdiger 
our best defender's yeah. been out That's all season, right. and Kante. Yeah. Um, I mean, and Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Yeah. Yes, it's, I think it's, astonishing. Few, it's astonishing. My dream would be that in three years yeah. or four years, Frank is still the manager. Yeah. And this core of players still is there. the core. And the core of the England team, by yeah. that Well, I don't care about England <laughs> so much at all, really. Sure. I, Although I, I think Pulisic, your countryman, your, oh your fellow American, is, what, is he, really one of the best. Star. I think he's going to be. But the way Frank's man management's just been yeah. fantastic. Now we're going to, let's just call let's get talk. Back, we'll get back no, to wait, music. Let's yeah. call talk sport and see if we can do a show. <laughs> get a show. Absolutely. That's my dream. Uh, um, and me. Well, listen, let, I think what we're going to do, Mark, we're going to just go straight into Pete Townsend. Yeah, because, sure. Because Barbara interviewed The Who many times, and, and it would just be great to to talk about the new audio yeah. interview. Well, absolutely. This is Pete Townsend interviewed by John Tobler in 1993. Now, this is on the... It's to promote his psychoderelict solo album. Also, it's just after he had the stage production of Tommy and... It sort of hangs around those two things, but they all interconnect with everything else. That, that he wrote an ending for Tommy for the stage play, which hadn't been there for the original album or whatever. Mm. And he goes into why he came to this ending. And we can listen to this clip now. He's talking... Basically what happened is that he sat down with his mother and went through the stuff that happened in his childhood, which was incredibly painful to him. Mm. And... In doing that, he found the ending he needed for Tommy. So we'll listen to this clip. It's, it's, it's about, basically about this conversation he had with his mother about his childhood. See me. Feel me. Touch me. My mum and I had a, 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 a conversation. I, I, I've always, there's always been this bit of my life that's been a big black hole into which I can, you know, projected so much of my creative life. And, uh, and, I, and I said to her, listen, I don't want to know why things happened. I don't want you to apologise. I don't want, I, I, you know, I, I don't want you, to, I don't want to put any pressure on you. I, but I just want you to tell me where I was. So can we take the years... 1948, 1949, 1950, and can you give me a chronology? And she stepped me through it, but she couldn't help digressing. She couldn't help, you know, giving me shades. Mm. And every shade that she gave me was deeply, deeply disturbing, but at the same time kind of uh, remunerative, kind of building, restorative, I should say. Although I do think I turned it into cash. Oh. I really do. I think, I think that I... I actually felt, uh, Christ, you know. I always thought that when I found out what had happened there, I would have been, I would be less of an artist because the mystery would be gone. But in actual fact, I think it's really helped me because I'm, I now I know what it is that I've been doing for so many years. See me, feel me, touch me. interesting interview that, that, that he talks extraordinarily honestly about kind of a number of things whilst also justifying what we regard as some of the most appalling pretentious rubbish that he's sort of produced <laughs> over the years you know and I should, we'll play another clip pretty much immediately because it's an interesting interview and John Tobler doesn't hold back from 
venting his opinions. Um, later on, we'll play a clip where he talks about Who's Next, which occurred after John Tedbury said, you haven't made a decent album since Who's Next, which is 1970, whenever it was. You know, It's pretty extraordinary stuff. But this clip, Tobler basically says, I saw you last year or the year before last live, the Who live, and, it, well, let's listen to the clip. It's, it's very, very amusing. <laughs> much more challenging than the last reunion, if I may say so, of The Who, which I thought was pathetic, with all those 25 people. There are only four people in The Who, and there are about 50 people on stage. Oh, well, you know, come on, you know, give us a break. I mean, the fact, the fact of the matter is that one of the original Who members is dead, and, you yeah. know, one of the, you know, in, 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 my, in my position, there's no way that I could go on with a fucking Marshall stack and produce the kind of noises that the Who did in the early days because I've already damaged my hearing. I don't think there's anybody out there who would want, want to see me deaf just so that I could reform the Who. Oh, you're absolutely and I, right. And, you know, the nod of my head really there was to actually, you know, to be pragmatic. You know, <clears throat> there was this tremendous drive, for, for, you know, from Who fans and from inside the Who to do something to celebrate that particular anniversary. And I felt that that was the only way that we'd get the kind of the size of the sound that we used to make, you know, with just the four of us. And, and uh, you know, I take your point. I mean, if that's what you feel like, you feel, but I think there was a reason why it was like that. I think it's too easy to say, oh, they're, they're out there with a load of musicians and a load of brass and, mm. <clears throat> you know, and, and they're hiding behind that. Well, I'm, in actual fact, it was symptomatic of age as much as anything else. You know, if it had a kind of a Las Vegas quality to it, I think the fact of the matter is, is that's probably where bands like The Who should be. I mean, that leads on to a broader discussion about rockers getting old. And he's very interesting about that. He talks about other people, his relationship with Roger Waters, who had been a close friend, who had just not been able to deal with... The not, other Roger in his life. The other Roger in his life. And it's, it's quite a long sort of... It's, it's a conversation, kind of fairly rounding mm. conversation, but it's, it's very interesting. He talks about how his generation of musicians, the mods and the sort of the early British blues and R&B artists, took on... Uh, adopted black music, uh, and it was about post-war values, about the sort of liberation of not having to go and fight a war anymore. Sure. And how he thought that was ruined by the hippies, and how he hated Monterey, and he hated Woodstock. Yeah. And he, f he felt that there was a, a sort of dream of liberation which had actually been scuppered by the people who were claiming to be most liberated. Mm -mm. Just... Barbara, what was your... When did you first meet The Who and Townsend in particular? And what, can you remember your first impressions? I'm trying to think. I probably saw them. I saw them at Madison Square Garden. I remember that. I remember introducing... Cameron was there, I think. Cameron Crowe mm -hmm. was a kid to Roger Daltrey. I was obsessed with The Who. The thing about The Who that... Well, the first time I saw them was at the Met when they did Tommy. I was in high school, and okay. we had gone to New York on a family trip, and we were leaving to go back to Chicago, and the Who were doing a matinee, and I was like, I'm just going to go try and get a ticket. And I stood in the kind of, you know, returns line, and I finally, it was like 2.29, it was going to start at 2.30, and there was a guy in front of me, and he wanted two tickets, they only had one, and I was like, I'll take it. And the whole time I was thinking it's going to be a shit seat. And it was like in the 10th or a center or something. But it, that was probably one of the 
top five gigs I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. I guess around, I used to go see every show they did once I was in the UK, and I loved all the records and knew them, but I was kind of obsessed as friends of mine that were obsessed with The Who, uh, with the relationship between Roger and Pete yeah. and, you know, the dichotomy of the whole thing. It was extraordinary, that tension which ran The throughout. words that he was writing that Roger was singing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, Behind Blue Eyes, and then all so that much- stuff. So who's next? Who by numbers? You know, Keith Moon dying was like... I think to... Oh, poor, just- for me, you know, like I remember when Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison, mm-hmm. bit, oh my God, when Keith Moon died... Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think the band died with him, in my honest opinion. I, do, I think that, that there was, however drunk and however lunatic he claimed was in, that he was this sort of central, unacknowledged central figure to the band, that it's his energy which gave them... And I saw them at the Hammersmith Palais in 71, and my most major memory of that gig is Keith Moon, is that, that yeah. all the energy seemed to yeah. come, come pouring out from the and back the of the humor. stage. And the humour. Yeah? Yes. I just think that it's funny about The Who... I think that now, in 2019, I think the Who of all the other all those classic acts sounds mm. dated now, mm. and we're like the Kinks. Arthur, we, we mm. happen to work with Ray still, but you know Arthur's just had its 50th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Arthur sounds so fresh, mm-hmm. whereas Who's Next, which is at the time and it's unqualified, it's just a really great mm-hmm. album, but I don't think it really stands up. Mm-hmm. Do you know? No, I, some of it does, but, like, obviously Won't Get Fooled Again does, but, no, I don't, I think. And Quadrophenia, I absolutely. No, I just think yeah, there's something yeah, yeah. about about it. I think they were so, I mean, the Who Sell Out was just... Yeah. I, I think I think one of the problems... Being an American listening yeah. to those ads. Sure. Is they, they so wanted to be an album's band, but in a curious kind of way, the Who were never an album's band, and so the, the Townsend's attempts to bolt these grandiose concepts onto making records... Just never quite worked. I mean, Tommy doesn't stand up for me. It's got some great songs on it, but as a collection of tracks, it, it doesn't. I think they were probably weighted down yeah. by Tommy. I mean, you know, live that, my that, as you say, instead of making probably straight rock records. Yeah. I mean, Live at Leeds is my favourite Who album. Yeah. And the reissue of it is ruined by inclusion of a quick one, which I just thought. Weirdly, was... though, what you said about what Pete said in that quote about Woodstock. You know, Woodstock, is, I think, made The Who. You know, certainly in, in America. America. Yeah, yeah. I didn't sure. even, I don't even know if I knew about The Who before mm. much. No. I mean, they were on the monetary film, though he talks in the interviews, says, you know, there we were, and then we were just roasted by Jimi Hendrix, you know. <laughs> yeah, because he, 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 that's right, he talks about just how threatened he felt. By they were, Hendrix. you know, they were the most exciting live band yeah. for yeah, a yeah. period. I, I think that's probably yeah. right. and Because and when the Stones, when you think about those early 70s, like Exile Main Street's my favourite record in the whole world. Even that tour, which was incredible, they were so... I remember they did a matinee show in Chicago. You can imagine. They probably hadn't been mm. to bed. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Completely. I mean, I think what's fascinating, you know, they, they are, the you know, after the Beatles, the two great rock and roll bands this country has produced from that time and so different from each other, yeah. influenced by the same music, but went in such different directions. Listening to the audio, which mm-hmm. I, I did last night, it just it just reinforced for me what a complex person Townsend well, is. made that great. His first solo album was and uh, Thunderclap Newman, all that stuff. Um, sure, 
But he's such a, he comes over, I always feel with Townsend that he's straining to be so much more than a rock star. That actually, there's something yeah. a little bit undignified about being a rock star. Or so, not being, not appreciating what you what you've done. Yes. He doesn't seem to, he never seemed to enjoy the success yeah. in the way that, say, Jagger mm. did. I, and I, I think that... And ditto Roger in a way, because Roger yeah. always was... I think felt he was living in Pete's shadow, and yeah. I, well, I mean, and there's also the obvious point that that you know Roger was was a sex symbol essentially, and 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 Pete definitely wasn't the sex symbol. He was the he was the intellectual, the the tormented, yeah. angry intellectual. Yeah. In I mean, place. I always felt he he thought that being the leader of possibly one of the greatest live rock and roll bands in the world wasn't enough. Yeah, I think you're uh, right. And and his efforts to kind of overcompensate for that. Affected the, the product of the band in the end. Mm. You know, because I, 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 Quadrophenia, I find unli- virtually unlistenable. <laughs> you know, I think about like, a quarter you, of it is pretty. I yeah. mean, the real me, I think, must be no. one of the most exciting. Yeah, but you, know, you know, you may as well just listen to that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a double album. I mean, in your, the piece, Barbara, that I mentioned, I mean, you're in the studio and Roger is doing his vocal for Love, Rain, Oh, and Me, you know, which is, know. Which is amazing. I, I, I mean, read to that been again, there for actually, that. yesterday when, when you sent it. I was, I was really proud of it. Yeah, it's a terrific piece. I mean, you're right there in the middle of all this. But, I mean, it says everything. This week sees the release of the new Who album, mm-hmm. but also... Townsend's just just published a new novel oh, God. called The Age of Anxiety, and, which well, I haven't not, read it, but it's already getting, I'm afraid, not very good things. reviews. And they went and got that, you know, thing in Camden, the rock... The, the Hall, Hall, Hall of Fame, Fame thing. thing. Yeah, got the first star yeah. in the kind and of... And then like, today yeah, I read Walk that Roger's having throat surgery. Oh, really? Or to okay. make sure... Mm. Well, they are an English institution of that, there is no doubt. I it's found funny, this interview though, interesting. Yeah, you know, talking about great albums and going back to the Stones, you know, the Stones had that run of albums. Yes, which the Who never had. Four in a row. Absolutely. Which the Beatles had. Which the Beatles yeah, had. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. The Beatles probably only That's where the Who place. fall down a bit, really, yeah, I think. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, that Let It Bleed... Beggar's Banquet. Just, just the best four albums and Sticky rock and fingers, roll. <laughs> and the Who never, never matched that. I yeah. mean, I remember a time when I would just, all I would do is listen to the Rolling Stones, yeah. probably when I was writing the book. I mean, Beggar's Banquet, you know. I mean, still, I mean, there's I, I, not one track I, you'd take off that no, record. absolutely. And they were so good that when they went slightly off the boil with its only rock and roll and goat's head soup. We really noticed it. Yes. This is not as good as what you've been doing for the last four years. Yeah, Black and Blue was like the last decent decent. record they made. It doesn't matter. I mean... If you could make four great records... They're phenomenal lives still. That's what they do. Yeah. Well, they're better than I mean because in that era when you were writing about them, I mean Keith was so out of it a lot of the time. The, the live shows were not great. I mean Earl's Court, I saw three of those shows. I went to the Earl's shows. Pretty slow. The Earl's Court shows were, and also the sound. The sound was, was terrible. I, I actually went to see the support band, the Meters, who I absolutely yeah. loved at the time, and they were playing on a temporary stage in front yeah. of the big opening stage with the house lights up with a pseudo carnival going, which I thought was just showing contempt for this brilliant. Not- well, it wasn't, know, it wasn't the Stones. They went through, um, I mean, and then they started touring all those average albums. But yeah. when they played Hyde Park about five years ago, it was just they you, did those, and they did Blastemary. I went they to did, that. I, I also to, saw them in your hometown, Chicago, yeah. back in the late nineties, and I, it was a revelation to me because mm. I had never, I don't think I'd ever seen them play really well. We, and they were really we, tight. We, we together. had Bernard Fowler, the backing vocalist. Yeah. He was sitting in that seat about six months ago. You know, also when they did London Stadium two years ago, 
They were just fantastic. You were saying that when the Hyde Park one was, Mick Taylor came and played that, a couple yeah, of times. It was, was almost great. a highlight for me when yeah. Taylor came uh, and on the and they Jagger, did Midnight Ramblers. Yeah. And you said that Jagger really raised his game. The, the hairs were st- I mean, it was, it was like two stags having a face off because Mick was almost playing with this, with this rage. It was like, how dare you ever kick me Mick out of this Taylor band? Was, <laughs> Mick Taylor great was player. so Incredible great. Incredible yeah. player. And I think we've always. Missed the. I have to do an event next week. There's a screening of the Ronnie Wood film, and I'm doing a little Q and A with Mike Figgis at the Olympic Cinema, and I it just sort of reminded me that Ronnie. You know, I think a lot of us felt we really missed Mick Taylor when, yeah. when Ronnie stepped in. You know, in well, a way, Ronnie was too close. Yeah. To you know what though? Play. I'd also say I was a huge Faces fan. Oh yeah, yeah. and I'm you sure. know what else you missed? You missed Ronnie being with Rod. Yeah, because mm. the Faces, who again never got enough, That's Rod right. kind of. For whatever reason, Rod's solo career collided with it and then mm. uh, uh, overtook yeah. it. Well, but, um, the that, faces were yeah. just—they used to play the Kilburn State Gum on yeah. every Christmas. That's right. Yes, and it was just yeah. no. They were they right. were a fantastic band, but they didn't have the discipline to make great records. Their the, the, the whole process of making records and that's as good as the Wink is pretty good. It's it's pretty and good. And so is Ooh La La. But too much alcohol, too much not alcohol. enough heroin. <laughs> yeah, not enough heroin. Sorry. Shall we That's move on to... Terrible uh, thing to say. <laughs> are, you, are we going to... Stay in school, kids. We won't try to put us to death. Talking about my generation. Just because we get around. Are we going to talk about Coldplay or just skate over them briefly? Skate. Because the, the, the other... Three... Well, the free feature is... Yeah. So Coldplay also have a new album out this week. And it's a shame we can't wheel in our colleague Paul Kelly, who cannot abide the sound or even the name of Coldplay. <laughs> we were going to bring him in just to go, I hate Coldplay! <laughs> so this one's for you, Paul. Yeah, we have three pieces. We have a very, very early piece, which actually is quite interesting. An interview by Robin Bresnark of Melody Maker, who who interviewed Coldplay before anyone had heard of them, before the, before the first yeah. like, hit, hit singles came out. That's quite interesting. There's a piece by the Canadian writer Nicholas Jennings interviewing Chris Martin in New York in 2005. And then, to circle back, the late Andy Gill ranting uh. in 2008 about why he hates Coldplay so much. <laughs> so that's for you, Paul Kelly. God yeah. bless Andy Gill. <laughs> Yes, yes I don't, we 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 uh, we accept Coldplay and their place. They actually on the radio the this morning. They're doing things. We can't tour because it leaves too large our carbon footprint. So we're going to find a way of. You know, and the thing is, admirable sentiments, but out of their mouths, it's just revolting. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're playing the Natural History Museum. Yeah, they're, and they're oh, playing really? Jordan. Monday, they're, yeah. they're playing. Two shows in Jordan to be broadcast around the world. Because you, you have to fly to Jordan. Right? <laughs> they, they can probably go there. They're going by, by camel. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be on a camel, right, aren't well, you? Well, Next there's week. There's a possible threat of that. Mark's going to Morocco. Yeah, to scatter my mother's ashes. Uh, yeah, not, um, not to, to walk in the footprints of Brian <laughs> Jones. Or you may, but enjoy your camel. Well, well you know, it's a, it is a possibility, though. My sister says that she once rode a camel and could barely walk for three days afterwards, so <laughs> I made us a pass from that. And it was all yellow. Well, OK, so Coldplay. And now we're going to just turn our attention to some of the new pieces yeah. in the library. And, Barbara, please just jump in if anything, you know, takes your fancy. Starting in Melody Maker, November 66, Alan Walsh talking to Cyril Bennett, who's the head of light entertainment and rediffusion television, about the scrapping of Ready, Steady, Go. We forget, 
I mean, I, as an eight, nine, ten-year-old, was just a passionate watcher of Ready, Steady, Go. It was Top of the Pops was there, but Ready, Steady, Go was the program. Um, Bands used to actually play live on Ready, mm. Steady, Go for yep. a start. You know, marvelous show. Kathy McGowan presenting it, who was like the face of mod girl. I mean, mod you would London. never have seen Ready, Steady, Go. I'm no, guessing. No, only afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After anthologies the fact. Yeah, yeah. yeah, DVD. Yeah. It was such a great program, and they scrapped it. Now, on one hand, you could say. Get out while you're ahead, quit while you're ahead. Not a bad idea. Top of the box staggered on for decades after this, mm. and and actually in, in a pretty good state for two decades after this. I think it's a great shame. Cyril Bennett says the two main factors to consider: one, is pop music on TV progressing, and could we do anything different to it? And two, is it going? Is it doing its job? The conclusions we came to was no on both counts. <laughs> Pop music just doesn't mean as much as it did at one time. Now, this is in November 1966. Wow. Um, that probably that night, Jimi Hendrix was playing one of his early club dates in London. The cream were just, just starting to emerge. I mean, rock and roll... About Sergeant to explode. Sergeant the Pepper's going to come out the next, the next year. You know, yep. Hendrix's first album is going to come out... It's the, a strange the statement. Uh, it, but the thing is... What's interesting is that reading other articles around the time, like various interviews for Rave magazine, for example, a lot of people are saying, is pop music in a really bad state? Right. There was a general idea that it kind of shot its bolt. <laughs> that it was an ephemeral yeah. thing. We, got, we, got, we, we got this interview with Small Faces, Steve Marriott, where he's asked that question. He's saying, you've got no idea. There's brilliant things happening at the moment. There's so much going right. on. But the musicians knew it. But the broader public, it did. It appears that a lot of people thought that pop music was shooting its bolt in mid '66. Mm -hmm. So that, that's kind of interesting mm -hmm. thing. '67, Steve Winwood, Rave Magazine, uncredited interview. He's just left Spence Davis Group, just starting Traffic. Uh, is he Steve already at this point, yeah, or is he still Stevie? I think he's still Stevie at that point. But he says, I certainly don't regard money as essential. As long as I have my cottage, I don't care. Surrounding influence, surroundings influence me, influence me a lot. I need a place far away from anywhere to write in. Which is fair enough, except he, he proved to be not a terribly good writer. I think the problem with traffic is that the actual... Outside of a couple of our John 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 Barleycorn. He didn't write enough. He didn't great write oh, I like Los Burks. I love I like Los I like that oh, that iteration of traffic too. Particularly when and their uh, first David Hood and Roger Hawkins. Really yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that they were just that much short of being a possibly really great band, you know, why we could argue the toss for a while. Is it the same cottage that they, it is, it that is. they got it together? Yeah, well, in? And he talks about that. Yeah. He talks about how he got fed up. You know, some kids listen good. There was a growing number in Spencer's audience that listened, but too many of them listened only because they liked my hair or hips or something. <laughs> hips. Um, and he says, I'm walking, out, I'm walking out on success and I don't regret Say it. Hips. Why aren't I more thrilled at that success? I don't know. Moving on to 69, The Temptations, Dennis Edwards, who's the new boy <laughs> in The Temptations at this point, he just re replaced Great um, singer. Um, David Ruffin. Interviewed by Richard York for the NME. He says, this is great. Making hit records is like making cakes. You just need the right basic ingredients and you're cooking. It's as easy as pie. Well, it helps if your cook is Norman Whitfield, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Dennis was the voice on things like uh, Psychedelic Chat, wasn't he? When yeah. the temps went sort of psychedelic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of my favourite yeah, bands of all time. He's asked about the racial situation in America. He says, it's a touchy situation and I wouldn't want to comment on it. I'm for equal rights, but I don't want to say anything more than that, which is a classic Motown artist response to that question. Yeah. You know, other people may be a bit more kind of you know, outspoken about it, but Motown artists don't rock the boat. Don't, don't stick make your neck waves. out too don't far. Yeah. Yeah. 
we got sent this piece by Wayne Robbins, Village Voice, February 75, Led Zeppelin. It's perfect with Barbara here because it's, it's uh, Chicago. It's, it's, it's Chicago. He's, 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 re- he's reporting on the beginning of the Stones' 75 tour. That's the one where Page had a broken finger. He'd broken his finger. Um, Plant was a bit unwell and so on and so forth. So it's not like you know, optimum state Led Zeppelin. But he, he reviews the show at Chicago Stadium. But he also kind of profiles the band for Village Voice readers who may not know all that much and also describes their audience. He says, Kyle from Rockford, Illinois, is the last one in the men's room as the house lights go down in Chicago Stadium. Robert Plant shakes his long golden mane while the amplifiers burst forth with Led Zeppelin's ode to their, their music, rock and roll. But Kyle is chugging a Budweiser and changing his shirt. Off comes the J.C. Penny mandala print on with Led Zeppelin T-shirt. I just bought it, he says, as he pulls out a fistful of white owl joints. We smoke one, and it's just like doing tobacco in the high school, John. I put a button to sink after each inhale, in case the law or a teacher comes in. And, <laughs> and then, of course, we, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but Led Zeppelin's notorious war with Rolling Stone magazine. Well, I, you know, I'd love to ask Barbara about that, because you, you, you represent Robert okay. now, don't yes. you? So you work with Robert now. And, right. and I mean, do you, just, just briefly, at what, while we're talking about it, how do you remember that that kind of curious feud between Zepp and the press in the 70s? I don't really remember it because, weirdly, Zepp, my, my thoughts were, I was probably just Stones. So I remember in 75 seeing the Stones at Madison Square mm-hmm. Garden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Writing about them for Cry You Daddy. weren't a sort of Zepp girl, were you? Well, really? I love, weirdly, way. my favorite Zepp album was Led Zeppelin 3, which too. probably is why I work with Robert because <laughs> yeah. that record is probably more what Robert's like as a person. Yes. And, and so his solo career has proved. Yeah. But I remember I went, I was fortunate enough to go to the Amit Zeppelin reunion tribute show at the O2. Mm. I think about that sometimes when I'm on the train to the O2. The O2 was brand new then. Mm. We were all so excited to have mm. this venue. Yeah. We yeah. Like, eh, were O2. you already working with Robert yeah. at that yeah. point? Yeah. You were. Well, Robert I worked with at Warner Brothers because uh-huh. he had those solo albums. Yeah. Of course. I thought it was very interesting that... that um, but that, he... he um, one, uh, that was the, around the exact time that Raising Sand was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, his Alison Krauss... Yes. One of the best record. things he's ever yeah. done. And he's as actually... I mean, you can mm. say I'm biased, but he's, his solo career is pretty astonishing. But we were... He took us, the little core team, out to dinner uh-huh. the night after that O2 show and... You know, he doesn't talk about Led Zeppelin that much, but the memories, and especially mm. of John Bonham and all mm. that, who were, they were great mates, was yeah. so warm. Yeah, he has no, great it, it, Bonham stories. Uh, I, I watched really that when, when it was shown on television, the, the other two shows, and you notice he really can't go up high. He was going, he's dropping down in parts of the songs rather than going up because he simply can't reach He those. couldn't do that. Come, I mean, literally by. I'd say 73, he couldn't right? hit those high yeah, notes. He had, he had busted mm. his voice at But, that you know, point. going back to when I mentioned Almost Famous, I think that whole, that is supposed to be Led Zeppelin, you know, the band It's that a sort of mix, isn't talk. it? Yeah, mm. that's supposed to be Robert, I think, when they go to the... The Golden <laughs> the God gold, thing. Yeah. And, of course, Cameron Crowe, who you've mentioned, was the guy that Rolling Stone basically gave him the job of healing this riff. Yeah. They sent this little kid out as a fanboy to interview them, and, and it worked. Yeah. They, it's they, funny, they, 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 this last quote from his piece is, For the first three and a half years, peaked by the critical shaft in their albums were received in public, publications like Rolling Stone, Led Zeppelin did virtually no interviews. When Stone editor Jan Wenner saw 
some of the digits projected during the press conference engineered by their 1973 tour's ace PR man Danny Goldberg, mm. now vice president of 24 of Led Zepp's swan song. He offered the cover of the magazine and the writer of their choice for a Rolling Stone interview. Unimpressed, the band refused. You know, I mean... This is the ba- a band refusing to have anything to do with the biggest rock and roll publication in America. But then that story did happen. Yeah. It did happen, yeah. and they were on the cover. It was a famous cover, and Cameron was very respectful and yeah. deferential to them. Talking it's about funny, there's a, sh- a series on Rolling Stone that H- that has been very good. running that I watched. It's mostly about John Lennon, lots of it. But, mm. yeah, it talks about Cameron. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's some great old footage. Oh, it's really well done. Alex Gibney, I think, when directed they, I think it. I think they talk very... about that when they hauled him yeah. in the office. Yeah. He liked, he, Cameron let us run his stuff on Rock's Back Pages for a while and then decided to, he wanted to take I th- it I think in, uh, people, his his people, as it were, yeah. advised him to sort of say, save the stuff yeah, it, for whatever, yeah, you know. It's, it's but, he's, but he's a decent guy. Yeah, he's, yeah he's, he is. He's, 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 he, yeah. you know, he's certainly been, you know, very gracious he, with his us. His heart's in the right place. Yeah. He loves... Definitely. Talking talk about Rolling Stone, 1977, John Swenson interviewing... John Bess- Swenson? John, interviewing Bessie. I used Rem- to know him. Yeah. Blast from the past. Yeah, yeah. he loved The Who as well. He wrote for sure. Crydaddy a lot. He did, yeah. he did, he did. Um, well, he's interviewing Bessie Wright, who's a huge favourite of ours. The clean-up I mean, uh, woman. But she's going through a kind of serious God period in her life, which I think she's been through and got past, in her, judging by her recent records. But she says, the power of God is what controls my life. If I sin, I caused it. Nobody but God can make me do anything. Which doesn't quite make sense. It's like a contradiction, um, it? Then she says, clean-up woman is nothing but the book of Ephesians. <laughs> Uh, think about it. If you don't take care of your man, you're inviting trouble. Well, you know, actually, Clean Up Woman's just a great rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, no, that no, I always away. think about the letter to the Ephesians yeah. when I, I listen I, I, to But Clean I do Up like Woman. her last line. So I don't want to be no star. I want to be a moon. It's bigger, it doesn't fall, and every now and then it eclipses so people don't take it for granted. But she anyway, no, we, 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 <laughs> oh, no, she's on God. She's yeah. on God. But, but we're huge Betty Wright fans. And oddly, her... She's made some fantastic records recently. She did one with Roots about five years ago, which is a, just a superb record. I saw her earlier in the year at the Barbican. She was She's one of those soul veterans who has really managed to kind of stay current yeah. and stay, yeah. stay relevant. A clean-up woman is a woman who Jim Sullivan, Boston Globe, September 81. He's comparing slightly tenuously the Doors and Joy Division, basically about losing their singers. But the main thing is that they both, at their respective times, represented the dark, the darker underside of rock and roll. He says, today they call their call comes from beyond the rock and roll crypt, and it's being heard by an increasing number of music fans who identify with the pain and anguish expressed in the music. The Doors and Joy Division lived and died on the cutting edge of desperate rock and roll. Mm. Oh, it's an interesting piece. It's, worth, it's, it's well worth reading. I mean, I always think that people do draw parallels between the Doors and Joy Division. I always sort of think that Ian Curtis would have thought Jim Morrison was the the, the most uncool rock frontman <laughs> of all time, but uh, but uh, there's no doubt that he he listened to the Doors yeah, yeah. As, a, as a kid. Um, talk about the uh, first three albums of your career being great. Yes, the Doors album. The yeah, Doors, yeah, yeah. From yeah. Before, yeah, yeah. Probably only worked for. Yeah, right? uh, well, you know, I was sharing with these guys. That, I mean, I was. <laughs> uh, Rhino asked me to write the liner notes for the Soft Parade reissue, and I just, I could not 
say that this it's one of the worst records ever made and to try and Where's make it hotel, so, and in the end the, the, the doors man even though they're all dead now there's still <laughs> doors management who of course rejected my line <laughs> i just was not prepared to lions and and make the case that it was a it was quite a good record it's an appalling record but the first three albums especially strange days yeah, and then la, LA woman hotel. at the end la woman is a great yeah record. i like morrison hotel. Yeah, i like morrison hotel. morrison hotel is good too so so they they did come back after these no i agree strange days july's five melody maker stan gets by Brian Case. Brian Case looking back at Stan gets. And this is in the light of the revival of kind of bossing over in groovy London clubs. Sure. With people sort of, you know, wearing kind of fancy clothes. He says, surviving senior berets of that period find all this as inexplicable as a cargo cult. That, that is bossing over. Later for Boss and Over Baby, it recalls a uniquely embarrassing period in the Star Wars when youth hung loose in mohair, greeted the opposite sex with faint kisses on either cheek and said ciao. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love Brian Casey. He's going to be ruthless. Tall and thin and young and lovely The girl from Ipanema goes walking And when she passes, each one she passes goes very swiftly, Adam Sweeting on the triumph of the CD in 87. This is quite interesting. He was terrified of the prospect of what exactly happened. It became a way for record companies to reissue old catalogue as fast as they could. And um, now they're doing it all on vinyl. And now they're doing it all on vinyl. <laughs> uh, but he, he, he gets Tony Wilson, who's massively in favour of, of, of CD. He says, I always hated vinyl because it's so temperamental and there's so much shit in the records. And it's like, you know... You wouldn't know one would dare say that no. now, would they? And lastly, and this is great, Sean O'Hagan talking to a former undertone, Michael Bradley, about growing up in the Troubles, in, in mm. Derry, London Derry, mm. during the Troubles. And it's a really, really interesting piece about how the band came together within that sort of context. He said, I was really fascinated by the guns. You developed this fake expertise. When you'd hear shooting, you'd go, that's a Thompson or that's an Armalite. All bollocks, really. We didn't really know the difference. Um, it's quite they, a chilling it, quote, isn't well, it? It, it, it is. young kids. It, exactly. And he says, there's no way we could have gone out and sung about the Troubles. It just wasn't our style. We hated Stiffle Fingers, who were from Belfast, because even though they were middle-class kids who had never been in a riot in their lives, they played up to it all the time. Despicable. Pretty good stuff. Yeah. Thanks so much, Mark. There's some great stuff in there. Have you got, a, you, you got anything there. you want to... No, I think, I think we'll finish up there, because we've hit the we hour mark. I think we should just say... Chelsea, Man City, Saturday. <laughs> well, yeah, or, well, Man City, Chelsea, which is a slightly more daunting prospect. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's, uh, what's your prediction? My prediction is that we win or draw. I think we'll I get think a draw. we'll get something from it. Yeah, it's hard to go to the Etihad and, and, and win. Um, Their defence, though. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, you never know after international weeks. What's going to happen? Yeah, you're absolutely so. right. That's Everything true. changes, doesn't it? And, and also I what mean, mood Raheem Sterling will be in after his international week and a half. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So I think, I think a draw is certainly a possibility. Yeah, I, mean, would be I, would, I would say even if we lost is not to get downhearted by it. We can live with a loss. Oh, absolutely. You know, but we won't. 
I think <laughs> we're loving what Frank's doing so much. We are. We, we certainly will. We will forgive the occasional loss. I we mean, are indeed Frankie Lampard's bloom my timing. Well, look, it remains for us to thank you so much brilliant. for coming in. Really it's been brilliant. such an honour for it's us. It's been such a treat just to hear your reminiscences and obviously to compare notes on our beloved football <laughs> that everybody else hates so much. We love them. So we be thinking about you on Saturday afternoon. And are you going up there? No. No, okay. I'm going to Chicago on Oh, you're going Sunday. to thank you go Thanksgiving, aren't yeah. you? Back to Chicago. We now have a two-week break, don't we? We don't. We are not having a podcast next week because I believe Jasper is going to be swanning around Europe somewhere. No, he does swan around. He does. I don't know how how we allow him to do that, I but, don't know. but he I does think we, a swan I think around. We need occasion. to re-examine his contract. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but we will we will be back in two weeks, uh, possibly with David too. We're hoping Fingers David will come in. We're going to go out with the yeah. final clip from the Pete Towns. Yes, video. which is actually about who's next and about the making of and about how it was his attempt to finish Tommy, his unsuccessful first attempt at finishing Tommy. But on that happy note... Thank you, thank so, you so much. much. <laughs> again, it's been such a treat. Come and see us again sometime. I will. Have I'm a s- safe trip back to <laughs> Sweet Home Chicago. We'll <laughs> see you in a couple of weeks. That's right. Bye. Bye. The thing that made the, the, uh, the, the Who's Next album, I think, made it such a great album, was is that I nearly died in the process of making it. I mean, it really was an extraordinary, you know, mountainous achievement. And, uh, and I really, really plumbed the depths of, of, of myself to do it. And, it's a, and it was, and it is my, it represents my claim to genius, because I think that in, at that moment, I knew what genius was. You know, I was actually going deeply, deeply, deeply into the borders of music innovation, you know, really researching, you know, meeting Stockhausen and doing all this kind of... And at the same time saying this is where where all this belongs and where the future belongs is to rock and roll. And somehow the music carried the spirit of that, but without any of the pretensions that were involved in the research work, if you like. Mm -hmm. But I ended up in absolute bits at the end of it. And I mean, I'm very, very... uh, unhappy because I felt that what I hadn't done, which is what I wanted to do, was to write the ending for Tommy. That was Pete Townsend in conversation with John Tobler in 1993, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Barbara Sharon, co-founder of the MBC PR agency. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. And remember, be carefree wherever you may be. <laughs>